Good afternoon, everyone. Hopefully uh, you didn't eat too much at lunch and your mind is thinking and you're alert and clear. Got lots of energy, ready to go. I hope. We got a, a lot to cover this afternoon. Uh, when you think about how to condense this whole concept of training down into one or two presentations, when we think that it took Jesus three and a half years of 24-7 interaction with his disciples, and that's the master teacher, three and a half years to be able to train these 12 men to be real effective disciples and workers, how we can cover much of anything in just an hour or two this afternoon is a little beyond me. But we can at least uh, introduce the subject and maybe share a few foundational principles. And uh, I can also point you to some resources that might be valuable to you. Uh, I haven't really said much about our ministry uh, before now, but maybe I'll just say a couple quick words before we get started as there's still people uh, coming in. Uh, I've been involved with the FAST ministry for a little over 10 years now. And the reason we named our ministry FAST is was because we believe that God was calling the people to hold fast to the Word of God. Many times people ask me, what does FAST stand for? Is it some kind of acronym? And, and there's a whole story behind that. But the, real, the burden behind what we're wanting to do with our FAST ministry is help people learn how to hold fast to the Word of God. And that means more than just memorization. Memorization is part of it. But as we saw this morning, we not only want to store it in our mind, but we also want to build it into our life and hold fast to it in that way. And we want to be able to share it faithfully with others. And so there's sort of this threefold process where we take in the Word of God, live it out, pass it on to others. And we've been developing training tools to help Christians do that. There's an interesting quote. I should have, uh, I should have got it before I came here, but it's on Great Controversy on page 599, I believe. Don't quote me, but you can look it up. It says, The first and highest duty of every rational being... Now, that's a, I like these statements that start out that way. just kind of leave you hanging there. The first and highest duty of every rational being is to know what is truth from the Scriptures, to walk in its light, and to encourage others to do the same, basically. So it's to know what is truth, to live it out, and to encourage others to also practice God's Word. And so this is what the focus of our ministry is. Uh, we have a website you can go to to get some of our resources. The web address is just www.fast.st, like street, fast.st. And uh, we have an actual little online school we're developing. We're putting more resources up all the time. You can check that out. There's a, a free course on how to memorize you can take and some other resources available for purchase as well. And uh, we also have an 800 number I'll just give to you. You can jot it down. It's 1-800-501-4024. And so if you'd like to call us and learn more about our work, you can do that. I also have a, a few little brochures. They look like this. I have them up here in the front. Maybe someone can put them on the table in the back, and you can grab one on your way out. But it has a little more information about our ministry. Okay, anyway, so much for that. Uh, what I'd like to do this afternoon, the next hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes, is uh, talk about this whole process of training and discipling and go over just some basic principles, how to do it. Uh, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually accomplish it. Uh, in our most... Typically in our educational system in the world today, 
we do a lot of teaching, but not always a lot of training. And there's a big difference between teaching and training. Teaching involves the transmission of information from one person to the other. So I can stand up here and I can say, uh, Sacramento is the capital of California or something like that. And as long as you can remember that information, I've taught you. I've given you that information. There's been a transmission of information. But if I wanted to, say, teach you to be a, a master cabinet maker, and I got up and gave you a lecture about how to use all the tools and the different kinds of wood and, and how you assemble the pieces together, do you think you could just go from here having heard a lecture or two on how to make a cabinet and have your first piece of woodwork come out looking beautiful? Well, most of it, it just doesn't work that way because it's not just a transmission of information, it's a transmission of a skill. And discipleship is more than information, it's a way of life. It's a, it's a lifestyle. There's skills that are involved. And so all we can really do this afternoon is just begin to look at some of the skills we need to dig out and acquire and build into our life. It's more than just information, it's skills, transmission of skills. And the process by which we can learn those skills and teach others those skills also. So I'm going to give you uh, kind of an outline. I'd like to share with you three or four main keys to training others and to being a disciple ourselves, and then there'll be some subpoints under those. But maybe we can begin with just a word of prayer. I invite you to bow your heads and uh, ask the Lord to be with us as we study. Father in heaven, we recognize that Time is short, not just this hour, but in this hour of Earth's history, that you're wanting to do something special. You need a, a special caliber of worker in these last days. We know that the answers are in your word, and we pray that you would bless our understanding as we seek to dig some of these principles out, that we might be more effective ourselves and might be useful to you in, in training others. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me give you the first key to discipling believers. Remember the Great Commission? There's two parts to this explosion formula. Evangelism plus training equals explosion. Go therefore make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to observe. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. This two-part combination. We're focusing on the training part right now. The first key, I believe, to having an effective discipling ministry in a church or for an individual is to have a clear conception of what our goal is. In other words, what is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? In the book Education on page 262, there's a, a great little statement. You may have read it before. It says, success in any line demands, does anyone know? A definite aim. Yeah, I heard someone say that. Success in any line demands a definite aim. So to be successful in fulfilling the Great Commission of, of making disciples, we have to have an idea in our mind of what a disciple is. What does it look like? What kind of things do you have to impart to a person so that they can be successful in a life of discipleship? And I'd like to draw a little illustration that has been helpful for me. I've shared this a lot of places. Some of you may have seen it before. But uh, it, it helps to sort of keep a, a, on target what our objective is as disciple makers. And what I want to do is I want to draw a circle to represent our daily life. And not much of a circle, but you can use your imagination a little bit. This is going to be a spirit-filled daily life where everything that this person says, all their actions, their choices, their words, everything is going to be filled by the Holy Spirit so they're able to live their life in a way that's 
pleasing to God, spirit-filled daily life. Now, I think most of us probably realize that the key to living a spirit-filled daily life is not something that happens on the outside, though people will see it on the outside, but it's something that happens on the inside. And so I'm going to draw a heart here to represent the innermost part of who we are, the heart of man, the core of our being. And the power source for living the spirit-filled daily life is something that takes place in the heart. It's not something that happens on the outside. You can't just wash up the outside and change the outside activities. Unless there's a change in the heart, there's going to be no transformation in the life. And what a Christian wants to see happen is for Christ to fill the life. Now, how is it that Christ comes into the heart? Well, you know in Revelation 3.20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. But how is it that Christ comes in? You may remember we read this morning in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, it says that they became followers of Paul and of the Lord, having received the word. In Acts 17.11, it says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and, and so on. And many other verses we could look at. The way Christ comes into the life is by receiving the Scriptures. As we receive the truths of God's Word and it's mixed with faith, it produces a conversion at the heart level. Something happens inside. Christ comes in through the Word of God. But you also probably realize that there are many Christians... People that have made a decision for Christ, they've maybe been baptized, they maybe attended church for several years, and yet it seems like there's a disconnect between the power source that's inside and the life on the outside. Have you ever seen a Christian like that? They, they, they seem to be seeking God, they seem to be coming to church, they seem to be sincere, and yet there are some serious major problems in their daily life on the outside, and you wonder why is there no connection between the power on the inside and what's happening on the outside. Well, the reason, many times, is that there are various spokes on this wheel, and one or more of those spokes may be deficient, it's not working properly, there's not a, a smooth flow of, of current from the heart into the rim. T take a bicycle, for example. When you're pedaling your bicycle on the chain, of course, it's hooked up to the back wheel, where does the power come from on the back wheel, the rim or the hub? Where does the power come from? It comes from the hub, right? That's where the power source is. It's the larger rim that's turning, but the power comes from the hub. How does the power get from the hub to the rim? It's through the spokes, right? If there's no spokes on the wheel, the, the inside hub can be running all at once, but the outside wheel is not going to go anywhere. And it's the same way with our Christian life. We can ask Christ into our heart, but if these spokes are not in place, then there's going to be no change in the, in the daily life, in the outside part that people see. What are these four spokes? Well, uh, there are actually probably more than these four spokes, but these are, are the main ones, the most important ones in the Christian life. And I know this is, this is basic, but I want to build on this a little bit. I like to think of this vertical bar as representing our relationship with God. And there's two key parts to this. One is prayer, and the other is the Word of God. And actually... These two spokes are very closely related. You'll find many verses in the Bible where the two go hand in hand. For example, John 15, 7. says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. See, there's, there's a connection between having God's word in the heart and having power in prayer. Another example is uh, Romans 4, 20. He staggered not at the promise of God, 
but was strong in faith, giving glory, glory to God. So he's connecting the Word of God, the promises in the Word of God, by faith, and he's acting on it. He's claiming those promises. And, and many other verses. Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. And, and, and you can think of other verses as well. And in other words, the more we grow in our spiritual life, the more we'll see that prayer and Bible study are actually closely connected. When we open our scriptures and we're having our morning devotion, we're in a constant state of prayer. When we're praying, we're not just praying our own thoughts, like I have my own little Christmas list, give me, give me this and that, this and that, and we have our little... But rather what we're doing is we're actually praying back the very promises of God. We're praying for the things that God has told us to pray for in the Word of God, that the Word of God is inspired, and, and that's the source of our faith. The, the two are not disconnected, it's one spoke. Prayer and the Word, that's how we connect with heaven. This horizontal spoke represents the two key ways that we connect with the world around us. And one is a life of obedience, and the other is a life of witnessing. You can think of this as what we do and, and what we say. Or you might think of it as our, our, the message that we give and the message that we, that we practice. The, the two things go together. It's not two separate spokes, but they're very closely connected. Uh, you may remember in 1 Thessalonians also, we looked at that this morning, verse 5. It said, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So he's saying, you know, we not only preach the gospel, but we also live the gospel. And you had a chance to see the gospel lived out in our own personal example. And so when the Thessalonians heard Paul's message and they saw Paul's life, they put the two together and said, wow, there's something here. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 19, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of these my commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So God wants us as Christians to not only do the right things, but also to say the right things. Not only to say the right things, but also to do the right things. Those two need to go together in a disciple's experience. In fact, there's a number of verses where you can uh, find all four of these folks. Just nice little uh, concentrated nutshell. One of my favorites is Ezra 7.10. It says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. I mean, this is a picture of a disciple. They spent that time in prayer, preparing their heart, searching their heart. They go into the Word of God to try and understand what God's will is. Once they find out what God's will is, then they do it, they practice it, they put it into action, and then they share that light with others and pass it on to other individuals. This is a process by which God helps us to be able to grow in our spiritual life. Now, I suggest that this is kind of like a uh, bicycle tire, but I know we have a lot of medical people here at Loma Linda. You can also think of this sort of biologically, right? We have our physical body, and we have our heart that's in the middle that's pumping this life-giving blood through all the different cells of our body. And we have uh, two different kinds of blood vessels. We have the arteries and the veins, right? The arteries are the ones that go... Let me see if I get this right. Arteries are the ones that come out of the heart, and the veins are the ones that go into the heart. So these are kind of like the veins, where the grace of God is flowing into our life, and these are like the arteries, where it goes out. It's coming in and going out, coming and going out. And there's a statement in the Spirit of Prophecy where it says that perfect health requires perfect circulation, right? And it's true in the spiritual, spiritual realm. 
the way we experience spiritual health is when there's the free flow of the grace of God. It's coming into our life and going right back out and coming in and going out just freely. Now, what happens, physically speaking, when someone has uh, one of their arteries begins to plug up or close up? What do you call that? Well, they have a a heart attack, right? Or they have a stroke or, or some other major health problem. This is exactly what happens in a Christian's experience. When some area of sin creeps in or when they uh, compromise their Christian witness in some area, it can have serious consequences in their daily life. And what we want to do as Christians is make sure that we have a well-balanced, free-flowing uh, spiritual circulation where the grace of God is just coming in and going out and flooding every part of our life. These are four key critical skills. There's a lot that we could say about each one of these. For example, when we talk about the Word, uh, you can take a new Christian and teach them how to memorize Scripture, the importance of setting up a regular Bible reading program, how to study the Bible, how they can find principles and convert those principles into practical applications, how to use concordance, how to use their computer or whatever, how to use the spirit of prophecy. How to, I mean, there's many different specific practical skills that go into knowing how to really internalize the Word of God. What about prayer? Well, there's lots that you can talk about, about how to set up a prayer journal, how to claim promises, uh, the importance of fasting at times, how to discern God's will in prayer, and uh, uh, how to... Uh, you know, you could, you could just go on and think about all the different things. Praise and confession and all of these areas are skills that the Christian needs to develop in their personal discipleship. What about the area of obedience? Are there some practical skills we can learn to help us grow in obedience? Well, sometimes a new Christian doesn't have any idea how to deal with temptation effectively. They don't know how to manage their time, how to set priorities, how to develop character. All of these are critical areas. Think about it. If we don't know how to do some of these basic skills, how are we going to be able to live a life of obedience for God? Uh, and there's practical training that every Christian needs, just fundamental things. And uh, witnessing, how to give a Bible study, how to share your testimony, how to present the gospel, how to make an appeal, uh, understanding the whole cycle of evangelism, how to knock on doors. I mean, you, you know, there's just all kinds of skills. And, and we need to be training institutions. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. That's in the book Christian Service, page 58. Every church should be a training school. Not just information, but skills. Remember, I talked about that earlier. Not just information, but skills. We can tell people what to do, but it's a whole other process by which we impart those skills to an individual. It takes time. You don't just learn it by listening to a lecture. You have to work at it and practice and and set some goals, and little by little we acquire the skills. It just doesn't happen overnight. It's a whole different way of training. It's training, not teaching. Interestingly enough, as we develop in these different areas, these skills each develop into specific kinds of ministry. For example, as a person becomes more and more fervent in prayer and more able to lay hold on the promises of God's Word, it develops into a ministry of intercession. And God wants every one of us to be uh, intercessors. As a person spends more and more time in God's Word, it may start just something simple, but uh, answering questions in a Sabbath school or whatever, someone says, wow, this person really seems to know their Bible. Why don't we let them teach their own class? 
So it develops into a ministry of teaching. Or they're out giving Bible studies, and pretty soon the church says, why don't you be personal ministries leader and see if you can organize you know, a whole team of Bible workers. Or why don't you do an evangelistic series or something, and it develops into a ministry of evangelism. Or someone has been growing in the area of obedience. Maybe they've had various struggles in their life and they've overcome this and overcome this and, and they know how to gain victory in their life. Someone else is struggling in the church and they say, hey, I can help you with that. I can show you exactly what to do. So what I call a ministry of, or what I like to call a ministry of exhortation. Where we can encourage and motivate and inspire other people. And uh, we all know people that just their lives are just so fragrant that when you're around them it just inspires you to live a more consecrated life we need more people like this and see I believe that God's plan for each of us is to grow continually in each of these four areas remember the illustration I put on here this morning I won't redraw the whole, whole thing but the four different stages you remember that those of you that were here when we first become a Christian that's like when we very first you probably can't see that when we very first invite Christ into the heart that's the spiritual babe a disciple is one that has not only invited Christ into their life, but they're building those specific disciplines into their day-to-day experience. They're taking responsibility. I need my time in the Word. I need some time in prayer. I need to grow in this area of obedience. I need some weekly goals, whatever. I need to be sharing my faith. I need to be doing something. They take responsibility for their own Christian walk. And as they begin to grow spiritually, become more and more connected with Christ in each of those areas, they begin reaching out to others and impacting others by their prayer, by their example, by their ministry, by their teaching. begins to be an influence on the people that are around them. And this is God's plan for each of us is to be able to have this kind of uh, impact on those around us. So this is kind of like our, our target. This is what we're aiming for. It's not only like a bicycle or a, a heart, but it also reminds me of a, a rifle sight. I don't know if any of you have ever shot a rifle, but you have a little scope on the top or a sight. They call it a sight. What do you see when you look through that little circle? Yeah, it looks like crosshairs, right? you got a little cross. And what do you use that for? Well, that helps you know what your target is, what you're aiming at. What, what are we aiming at? What's right in the crosshairs? Christ. This is what we're aiming at. This is how we keep Christ at the center of our life as we spend that time in prayer and study the Word and faithful obedience and sharing our faith with others. The more faithfully we build these skills into our life, the more we're going to keep Christ right at the center of our experience. And we need to help every Christian that comes into our church be able to understand these basics. And not just say, hey, you need to do this, but how do you do it? How do you do it? And I'm going to come back into that more as we go along. So the first key to being an effective discipling ministry is to know what your goal is, to have a clear objective in mind. What is a disciple? How can you make a disciple if you don't have an idea what one looks like? And these are some basic skills that we would want to build into each one's life. Now here's the second key. Uh, in my experience, uh, as I've worked with a lot of different people over the years, the thing that has had perhaps the, the greatest impact on our success as a ministry is when we began to realize that God trains disciples through teams, through teams or small groups. For example, when Jesus wanted to train workers for his kingdom, what did he do? It says in Mark 3.14 that he ordained 12, that they should be with him, and he might send them forth to preach. He, he picked a handful of guys that he could spend a lot of time with, intensive time, and in that small group, that small community, that team, that ministry team, 
Christ was able to train and transform their lives. When Paul was training workers, how did he do it? I, I memorized this verse one time in Acts 20. It's Acts 20, verse 4. Interesting verse. It says, And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and Gaius of, of Derby, and Tychicus, and Trophimus. I mean, here's a team of seven guys that were traveling around with Paul. And that was just a team that went with him. And there was another team that had gone on ahead. So Paul had a team of workers. They would travel around from city to city and say, why don't you come join our team? Why don't you come join? And in the, the fellowship of that team, lives begin, began to be transformed. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. This is actually uh, what we were told to do in the Scriptures. For example, in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If we're made protectors of Christ, we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. How is it that we hold our confidence steadfast to the end and we become partakers of Christ? Well, we have to exhort one another. Now, I don't know about you, but I know in my own personal experience, sin can be very deceitful. You can become very careless, very casual, begin negligent these little things. And if you're not getting exhortation from someone else that really knows you and knows what you're going through in your life, it's very easy to become negligent in our spiritual life. The solution to that problem is to exhort one another. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I hope you're jotting down some of these references. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But what does the next word say? Woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. So if you're trying to do this by yourself, then you're setting yourself up for the consequences that the Bible clearly says will come. If you're not in close fellowship with other Christians that are praying for you and studying with you and, and holding you accountable and working with you, when you stumble, there's no one around that's going to even know. Right? Because we come to church, we dress up, we put on our smile, and no one even knows that we're struggling spiritually. But when you get involved in a close, tight-knit team where everyone knows what's going on in their lives, we're praying for each other and working, you can tell something's not right, and you can pray for them and say, hey, what's going on? You know, and... Or you can just share, hey, I'm really struggling in this. And your group can come around you and, and help you. We, we need that accountability. We need that, the power of a team. In fact, we need it more and more as we get closer to the end. Some of you have gone through the survival kit. How many of you have done the survival kit? Any of you? Just one, two, three. Okay, a few of you. Yes, okay, a couple. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. It's one of the verses in that set of lessons. How's it go? Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer we get to the end, we're going to need this kind of accountability and intense fellowship more than ever before. Do you know why that is? I found this interesting statement. I, I don't know if this is why Paul wrote that, but it's sort of my hunch anyway. I found this statement in volume 3 of the Testimonies. It's on page 488. Listen to this statement. and When I read this, it just kind of blows my mind. It says, The necessity for the men of this generation. Now, this was written in the late 1800s, so well over 100 years ago, 120, 130 years ago, something like that. And she says, The necessity for the men of this generation, way back then, to call to their aid, the power of the will, strengthened by the grace of God, in order to withstand the temptations of Satan, is twice as great as it was several generations ago. What was she saying? Back in the, back in the late 1800s, it's really getting bad. Temptations are getting terrible. What would she say today? Not twice. She'd say 10 times as great or 20 times as great, wouldn't she? But you know what the next sentence says? 
But the present generation has less power of self-control than those who lived then. So not only are temptations getting worse, but we're getting weaker and weaker morally by the generation. And if we think that we're going to be able to make it to the end all on our own without taking advantage of the provision that God has made within the very church of Christ, for our own strength, for our own protection, for our own safety, you know, we are putting ourselves in a dangerous and vulnerable situation. We need one another. And so I want to challenge you, if you're not part of a team that is focused on training, focused on training, where there's accountability, where there's goals, where people will be checking up on you and praying for you and encouraging you, and you're making progress in your spiritual life, just coming to Advent Hope on Sabbath morning and hearing a sermon, however great the sermon might be, will not do what you need. We need to be part of a small group that is helping us to grow spiritually. I want to challenge you to be part of a team. It's how Jesus trained his worker. It's how Paul trained his worker. It's what the Bible says we need to do. And there's plenty of counsel in the spirit of prophecy about bands of workers and companies of workers. We need to press together if we're going to be able to grow successfully. So first of all, we need to know what our goal is. And second of all, we need to understand the importance of teamwork in this process of spiritual growth. These are two foundational principles. Here's the third one. Third one is that we need to make sure that we build commitment in those that we're working with. Commitment is vital in, in discipleship. If we're not committed, we're not going to be spending that time in the Word. We're not going to be spending that time in prayer. We're not going to be spending that time growing in obedience or in witnessing. It's all about commitment. That's the bottom line, commitment. And commitment is not easy to cultivate in a person's life. If you're a church leader and you're trying to find people to help with this project or get involved with this ministry or this outreach, you know that many of our church members are just not committed. And this is it's a, it's a pervasive problem all through the church. It's everywhere. Not here, just everywhere. Commitment is a problem. How do you build commitment? I'm going to give you very quickly, I only have a few minutes left for this session, I want to give you a number of suggestions for how to build commitment in a team. It's what we do in our fast ministry. All of our Bible studies are designed for small groups, for teams. And the first thing that I would recommend, a lot of this is in our leader's manual. You can get that and look over it if you're interested in starting a team. But what I like to do, the very first thing, is have an orientation session. Where I'll say, look, this is what we're going to be doing for the next five weeks or the next nine weeks or whatever. This is what the requirements are going to be. This is what our goals are going to be. And, uh, and if this is something you would like to do, then we encourage you to be a part. But there has to be a commitment to accomplish these goals. In, in Luke 14, 28, it says, Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost where they have sufficient to finish it? So the first thing you want to do is say, Look, this is going to be the cost. This is how much time it's going to take. We're going to meet so many weeks, so many days, and, and this is what's going to be involved. If you want to be a part of the team, we'd love to have you, but this is the cost. It may not cost a penny, but it's going to cost time. It's going to cost effort, right? And so make sure they know exactly what's involved. Here's what will happen. You'll have someone on your team say, well, I'd like to join your group, but I really don't have a good memory, and, and I'd just like to come and attend the Bible studies. Can I just skip the memory assignments? Say, no, this group is for those that, that want to be able to fulfill all the objectives in the course. Wait until you find another group that's not memorizing Scripture or find another time when you're ready to memorize or whatever, but this group is for those that are willing to pay the cost. Or they may say, well, you know, my schedule, I'm on a, on a split schedule, so I'll only be able to come every other week. Can I come every other week and, and I'll, the other weeks I'll have to miss because I'll be working? 
So you know what you need to do is wait until we can have a group started that meets every other week or you have a different schedule when you can come. We, we, you want to be committed. You, you remember how Jesus dealt with excuses? You can read this in Luke 9. Someone came up to him and he said, uh, Lord, I want to follow you, but first let me go back and bury my father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You come follow me. Someone says, you know, I want to follow you, but this or that. And, and, and he said, you know, and just excuse after excuse after excuse. And every time he says, look, it's either all or nothing. It's either commitment. And, and it's not that we want to be hard, so hard-nosed about this. But if you don't enlist their commitment at the very beginning, you can't get it later. You can't say later, well, I really think you should do this. Well, I never planned on doing it from the beginning. You, you, you can't do it. You have to get their commitment from the beginning. So that's the first thing is have a good orientation session where you let them know exactly what's going to be involved and don't deal with excuses the way Jesus did. Just say, wait till another time when you can, when you can do it. During your orientation session, this is number two, sub-point number two, explain the team concept. Now, this will be foreign to some of the people that join your group. Uh, the way we're trained in our educational system is we all show up to class, we listen to the lecture, we take our test, and it doesn't matter what anyone else does in the group. As long as we pass our test and we get the grade we're looking for, we've done fine in the class. That's a class. This is not a class. We're talking about a team. A team means that we have decided to commit together as a group to help one another be successful. So if I get all my verses learned, I'll just use scripture memory as an example. If I get all my memory assignments done and you don't get your memory assignments done, I have not succeeded because you're part of the team. And, and my goal is to see you be successful and your goal is to see me be successful. Another is when we realize that every person in the team is going to have an influence on the other members of the group. And we're all working together. We're praying for one another. We're helping one another. We're challenging one another. That, that mindset has to be in our head when we start that group. We're a team. This is not a class. It's not uh, you know, just a social thing. We're here to accomplish an objective. And the objective is that each member of the team grow in their spiritual walk. So if someone is struggling with their memory verses, again, I'll just use that as an example. I'll say something like, uh, well, did anyone else have the same problem? Maybe they're having trouble remembering references, or maybe they just can't seem to find time for their daily review, or they're not being consistent, or whatever the problem is. And I'll say, does anyone else have the same problem? And someone else will say, yeah, I had the same problem, but this is what I did to solve it. Or, uh, you, know, you know, use the resources of your team. The answers are there. With you. God will assemble the right group of people to help that team be successful. So make sure you explain the team concept right up from the front, right up from the beginning. Here's the third thing. High standards. Maintain high, high standards in your team. I have a couple rules in my groups. I'll say usually something like this. I, I go over this in the orientation session and remind them as we go along. I'll say something like, uh, our goal is for each person to have their Bible study completely filled out before they come to our team meeting. And if you don't have your Bible study filled out, then when we get to that part of the program, we're just going to skip over you. Now, that may sound harsh, you know, but we have a lot of people come to Sabbath school. I haven't even looked at the quarter in there. They're just jabbering and sharing their own thoughts out of space, you know, whatever. But in my team, it, I, I, you know, this isn't what we want. We've I've already studied, and we've come to just share what we've already learned. We don't have time just to think about it, do the study in our group. This is something we've already done. You know what happens when you make a rule like that? The first time they come and they don't have their Bible study done and they're going around the circle and you just skip them every time, I guarantee you the next time they're going to have their Bible study done. I guarantee it. Or if, uh, you know, encourage them to memorize their verses word perfect, high, high quality. I mean, if they get it almost right, say, oh, you did great. No, say, no, you missed a word. Uh, you know, we're striving for excellence, aren't we? In Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it 
heartily as to the Lord and not into men. We're not just doing it to, to please our team leader, to please our accountability partner, whatever. We're, we're trying to strive for excellence in everything that we do. So set high standards in your team. And you know what will happen? When you have a high challenge for your team members, they'll rise to the challenge. If you have a low challenge, they'll rise to a low challenge. People will rise to what you expect of them. So set high expectations for your team. Here's a fourth one. Use effective training method. Uh, use an effective training methodology. I, I wish I had more time to go into this, but I'll, I'll share with you a simple little recipe that uh, we use in our ministry. Twelve words. You can remember it real easily, okay? Tell them why. Show them how. Get them started. Keep them going. Can you say that with me? Tell them why. Show them how. Get them started. Keep them going. One more time. I want to impress this on your mind. Repetition, right? Tell them why. Show them how. Get them started. Keep them going. Now, this is really simple, but it works. It's not how we teach, but it's how you train. If I wanted to teach or train someone to memorize Scripture, here's how I would do it. I would say, uh, let's say I was studying with Paul, and Paul was interested. He said, Dan, how do you memorize Scriptures? I'll be happy to go over it with you. Here's what I do. And so I'd sit down with Paul some afternoon in his dorm room or an apartment or whatever, and the first thing I would do is I would tell them why we should memorize Scripture. And I would go through a simple little Bible study and say, this is what God's Word says, and, and go through so that he knows that the reason for this is something that God has said. We tell them why from the Scriptures. And then the next thing I would do is say, Paul, uh, now this is how I do it. And I would reach into my pocket, and I'd pull out my verse pack, and I'd say, you know, here's how I write out my verses, and here's how I use my verse pack, and here's how I do my... And I would just show them from my own life how I memorize Scripture. So you tell them why from the Bible, you show them how from your own life. And then I'd say, Paul, why don't you get started with this? You know, here's a first verse. I'd like you to memorize Philippians 4.13 or some, verse, some easy verse. And say, why don't you see if you can memorize that between now and the next time we get together. So I'm getting him started. And then the next time we meet together, I want to keep him going by deepening that commitment. I may have to meet with him week after week for six months or a year until this becomes his own personal conviction, his own personal lifestyle. Every week I'm giving him verses, reminding him about the methods and, and the principles and, and the importance of it until it begins to sink into Paul's mind. Now it's his conviction and no longer mine. You can't do that in just a sermon. You can't do that in a sermon. Now you can motivate someone and they may even be inspired enough to go home and actually memorize a verse, but to see a real change in a person's lifestyle, usually you have to work with them week after week after week after week until it finally begins to stick. Tell them why, show them how, get them started, keep them going. By the way, you can find all of those in Hebrews 5, the last three or four verses. It talks about uh, how they need milk. That's the Word of God. They're unskillful. That's how to do it. They... Uh, by reason of use and exercise, that's the doing it, the practice of it. And full age, that's the time, sticking with it over the process of time. Those four ingredients are right there in that passage. So here's another principle. Uh, use a good training methodology. And by the way, this is what we do in all of our fast lessons. We have a Bible study. Then there's practical training, some suggestions on how to actually do it. So maybe the Bible studies on prayer. Practical suggestions are on how to set up a prayer journal. And then we give them a weekly assignment. That assignment is to go home and actually do the things that that lesson talked about. And then week after week, you're constantly referring back to their prayer journal, encouraging to add this request or that request. By repetition, the conviction deepens and builds in their life. Very simple strategy, but this is how you train people. Training is different from teaching. I don't know how to emphasize that enough. I was raised 
to be a teacher. I was taught how to be a teacher, and I had to understand that training is different from teaching. Okay, number five, I think. Get them sharing. If you want to train disciples, then encourage them to share everything that they learn with someone else. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, The things that thou hast heard of me and my many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So Paul taught Timothy. Timothy taught faithful men. Faithful men taught others. It's a, it's a progression. And there's a reason for this. Uh, when I'm listening to a teacher and I'm hearing what he says, I'm sort of registering the information. I'm taking down my notes and, and I'm hopefully acquiring some of that information. I can even review it, study it, maybe take a test, regurgitate it and be able to pass the class. But if you ask me to do a class on that topic myself, that means I have to have a whole different level of competence, mastery of that content. It means I not only need to understand what the teacher is saying, but I need to be able to so internalize that I can put it into my own words. I need my own illustrations. I need my own uh, practical experiences that I can draw upon, my own personal testimonies of how I did it or what worked for me. It's a whole different level of competence to be able to, to teach someone, you have to thoroughly internalize the material. And so whenever you're training someone how to have a devotional time or how to manage their time or whatever the skill is, how to share their testimony, encourage them to go and find someone else that they can share those same skills with. After you've gone through the whole basic training program or the survival kit or whatever you're doing, encourage them to lead a team of their own. They'll get a certain amount doing it themselves for the first time. But when they actually lead a group and try and pass those skills on to someone else, they'll get a whole different level of mastery of the content. So get them sharing the things that they've learned. This is vitally important. Here's another one, number six. Um, Self-assessment. Self-assessment. When I I was at Weimar, we had uh, a, uh, a number of teams that were going. Lord, really blessed. Our teams were scattering all over the campus. And I had a team of guys that were leading all these different small groups on on campus. And so we would meet each Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. That was our early morning time. It was great because it required commitment, right? If you're not committed, you're not going to get up. They would go around and wake each other up, roll each other out of bed, and they'd come in half-dressed, whatever, and and half-awake, you know, and their eyes all groggy. But they they made it because they were committed. But anyway, each of them were leading a team a second day a week at 5 a.m. So they were up twice a week. But one day they're leading, and one day they're with me. And what I would do is... I would ask them how their teams were going, and we began to look for certain patterns, certain strengths, certain weaknesses, began to experiment with what worked best in the different groups. And we developed a little worksheet, and I encouraged each of my team leaders to ask themselves these seven questions. And I don't remember if these are exact same questions, but they were something like this. Uh, Number one, was the training practical? Uh, Was it something that they could actually take home and use? If it wasn't practical, then we flunked that part of it. Did God speak to us through the Bible study? Did we just go through the question and answers? Or did we really sense that God was saying something to us? You can tell the difference, right? You've been in Bible studies where you just went through the motions, or there's times where you sense that God was speaking to you. Was our prayer earnest? Was it just sort of a formal prayer, or was it a real earnest prayer where we really sensed our heart warmed and we were pleading with God? You know, these are the kinds of questions you have to ask yourself. And if something's not right in your team, you need to do something different the next week and to make it better and better and better, always striving for excellence. Was I transparent? Did I come across like, you know, I had all the answers? And, or did I 
see myself as part of the team and we're all in this together. We're all working towards this together. I got struggles, you got struggles, we're learning together. Coming across in a transparent way, not just exposing all of our garbage, but, but just being real about who we are and where we are spiritually. That's important in a team. Because you want your team members to be transparent. You want them to share where they're at and where their struggles are so that you can pray for them and encourage them. Did we laugh together? This may sound like a kind of funny question, but you know, you can be in a team and it's just so serious and so goal-oriented, just boom, 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 and I hope it hasn't sounded like that. But it needs to be a, a fellowship where you're, you care for one another and you enjoy being together, where you like coming to your team. And if your team doesn't crack a smile for the whole hour, something's wrong with your group. Something's wrong. And so you can ask, did we laugh? Did we really have a, a great time together? If so, then that's a, a good sign. If not, you need to do something to sort of lighten it up a little bit. Discipleship can be kind of overbearing if, if you're not careful to maintain the human element to it. Did we sense the Spirit's presence in our meeting? Did we sense that, that God was there and moving and impressing upon our hearts what to do and, and uh, that we were motivated to grow in our personal life? These, these are important questions. The last one I had down was, did our commitment to ministry deepen as a result of our time? Were we more motivated to share our faith, more motivated to be involved in the Lord's work as a result of our time together or not? And we would ask ourselves these questions week after week, and we would find the, the weak areas of our, of our leadership style, and we would set a goal for the next week to do something different, something better. And so every week we're becoming more and more skilled as leader. You don't have to be perfect when you start out. But we need to be constantly evaluating ourselves and constantly finding ways to improve. And a checklist like this, simple questions like that, doesn't have to be the exact same questions, but something like that can be a real asset, a real useful tool in that process. Here's another thing. I think this is number seven. Last one I have on my list. Uh, there's probably more. Oh, actually, I have a couple more. One is uh, to acknowledge accomplishment. Maybe this is number seven. I'm not sure what number we're on. Acknowledge accomplishment. Uh, we broke our training program down into different parts. We have a little five-week introductory course and a nine-week course and then a more advanced nine-week course. By the way, they go right along with this. The survival kit is designed for spiritual babes. Basic training is designed for disciples. Team tactics is our evangelistic training program that's designed for workers. And, but we broke them down into little parts. And what I would do with my groups, usually, is uh, when they finish the survival kit, even though it's only five weeks and they've only learned just five verses, I mean, not really that challenging, but... Um, but it's a big thing for some people to actually learn their first five verses. I got five verses down. You know, that's exciting. And so I would print out a little certificate and write their name, and I would sign it and make it nice, and, and I would give it to them in some place. I'll actually do it during the church service. You know, have a little special acknowledgement of completion, a certificate of completion. When they finish basic training, I give them another certificate. When they do team tactics, I'll give them another certificate, and then I'll give them a big certificate for doing the whole discipleship track. Some groups, they'll, they'll get together and they'll have a, a dinner together, just sort of like a, a, not a party, but just sort of a celebration that they've accomplished. They've, they've achieved their objectives. The team reached what it was aiming for. Or uh, my wife, she was leading a team in, in Michigan several years back, and uh, she took the whole team and they, they went out to a bed and breakfast. They, did, they went out for a weekend and just a bunch of ladies in her group. And, you know, they weren't like naturally spiritual giants or anything when they started, but they worked at it. They, they wanted to grow spiritually, and they worked together, and, and it was hard for some of them. Some of them really struggled, but they kept plugging away and plugging away, and they accomplished their objective, and they went out, and they just had a wonderful time laughing and crying, and, you know, like how girls do, ladies do. And, uh, it, it was, but it was important. You know, it, it's important to acknowledge accomplishment. 
Because when you realize that I've learned my first five verses and I've been successful, what does it motivate you to do? Now I can do the next one. And so you want to just continually acknowledge uh, accomplishment, success. That's important. Build on success. Here's the last one. And this may be the most important. It's almost worth a whole nother point, number four. First one was know your goal. Second one was use a team. And third was build commitment. But the fourth one, I just want to talk about the secret to motivation. All of these are techniques and they're important and they're, and they're practical skills that will help you as a team leader. But if you really want to build motivation, I just ran over my time uh, a few minutes ago actually. If you really want to build motivation, do you know the Bible gives us the key to building motivation or commitment? You won't find either one of those words in the, well, maybe you'll find commitment, but you won't find the motivation in the Bible. But the principle is found in Matthew chapter 13 as well as other places. I was praying about this once and saying, Lord, how do, you, how do you build motivation? How do you build commitment in a team? And he directed my thoughts towards these verses. And I read and was like, wow, that's the answer right there. Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 44. Two little parables. And you've heard them before. You've read them. But tell me if these guys in these parables don't sound motivated, don't sound committed. Matthew 13, verses 44 and on. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man has found, he hides, and for joy thereof, notice the joy, for joy thereof, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Would you say these guys are committed? Would you say these two individuals are motivated? Yeah, they're motivated. They sell everything that they have. They sell their house. They sell their land. They sell every possession. They cash in all their savings, their retirement, everything they have to get the object of their desire. Why were they so motivated? I mean, the one guy says he was happy to, to give everything he had. He was happy to do it. What was the reason? Think about it. It was the value of the object. They both saw the value of the object. The guy that saw that treasure hidden in the field, he says, this treasure is worth more than everything I have put together and then some. I mean, it's a great exchange for me to give all of this for that because I see the value of the treasure. The merchant man, he had never seen a pearl like this. It was the one pearl he'd been looking for his entire life. The most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. He said, this is more precious than all my other pearls combined plus. So I'll, I'll happily trade everything I have just to get that pearl. You see, if you want your team members to be motivated... You have to constantly hold out a vision of the value of the training. They have to understand where it's heading, where it's going towards. It's not just to learn a few verses. It's not just to, to learn a few skills or to, or to get my certificates. I mean, those are fine. You know, that's great. But the, the real motivation should be the value of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. To really experience that oneness, that connection with Christ that's possible. To have that spiritual experience that God wants for every one of us. See, when we, if we can somehow paint that picture in the beauty that it deserves to be painted in, the members of your team are going to be motivated. Do you remember Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? So Jesus is looking at the joy that's going to come as a result. He's keeping his eyes focused on, on the rewards, the results, the, the blessings that are going to come from his choices. And, and we're a step behind Jesus looking to him and saying, this is why I'm doing it. This is what we're working towards. Oh, I almost lost my step here. I get so excited, you know. 
I mean, if we could somehow see the, the value of what Christ is holding out to us. When I, I think about the life of Paul, you know, when Paul was going to his, I, I really should stop, but I'll, I'll go a few more minutes. When Paul was in the prison in Rome there in 2 Timothy, and he knows his life is about to come to an end. He said, you know, I know that the time of my departure is hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. course. Henceforth, there's later for me a crown, you know, and, and so on. Paul was ready to go to his grave. But you know, if you read the rest of 2 Timothy chapter 4, you can turn there for just a quick second. This, this just inspires me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I hope it inspires you, especially those of you that are interested in leading team and discipling others. Look, immediately after he says this, verse 8, finishes his course, there's a crown laid up from the righteous judge and so on. And the next few verses, all the way to the end of the chapter, he starts mentioning specific individuals. In verse 10, he talks about Crescens, who is uh, the leader there in Galatia. Titus was one of the guys he trained. He was in Dalmatia. Luke was there with him in Rome. Mark was somewhere with Timothy. Uh, Tychicus was in Ephesus. Uh, Carpus was at Troas. And you can skip on down, you know, uh, down in verse 19, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Nisiphorus and Erastus was at Corinth and Trophimus was in Miletum and he's got a whole new team of leaders there in Rome, Eubulans and Pudens and, and Linus and Claudia. He had key men that he had poured out his life to scattered all over the ancient world. He said, I can go to my grave and I know that there's workers here and workers here and workers here and workers here and the gospel is going to continue to go forward even after I'm gone. I finished my course, but I've invested my life in something that counts. It's made a difference. And I'm ready to go. Those guys are going to take it and it's going to spread. You know, when I come to the end of my life, when you come to the end of your life, wouldn't you want to like to be able to look back and say, my life made a difference? As a result of my efforts, there are people all over the world that are, are living for God, that and maybe at a deeper level of commitment than they would have been otherwise, if they're just spread. Don't you want your life to count? I, I, know, I know we all do. We want our life to mean something, to, to, to be something for God. And it doesn't mean that we have to go out and preach and speak to large crowds. All we have to do is just find one person and pour out our life to them. Find one person we can make a difference in their experience. If we could see the value of it, and if we could pass that, that vision on to those that we're training so that, they recognize how important it is just to give our lives to people. They'll be motivated. They'll be motivated. I'm going to challenge you that uh, as Christians, that we recognize what God wants to do with our life. That We don't just recognize it, that we see the value of it. We see the blessings that are going to come to us if we will just pursue God's plan for our life. And I believe down at the end of the road, when the Lord comes or if uh, we end up dying first, we'll be able to look back on our life and say, I don't regret one sacrifice I made for the Lord because I see the value of it now. And I pray the Lord will help us to be motivated and help us to motivate others. Amen? Now, I've gone over just a little bit. I hope I can go a little past uh, five. But what I want to do is take a 10-minute break so everyone can get a drink and, and go to the restroom. We'll come back. I want to talk about evangelism in the last section. Talk a little bit about evangelism. So let's have a, a quick prayer and then we'll meet together at about 20 after. Father in heaven, I pray that you would just inspire us that our life can make a difference 
It may be small ways, maybe no one around will notice, but we can impact the lives of those around us. Help us to understand how to train, how to make disciples. And uh, give us someone that we can pour out our life to. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.